0: okay let's go we are uh, looking at luke chapter 5 uh, verses 27 through 32 and uh, it's really a privilege to be able to look together at this passage for sure and uh, this should be a pretty simple sermon really i hope it seems simple it shouldn't uh, feel very complicated because i'm kind of going to be saying what i've been saying over the past several weeks now really because you remember uh, verses 1 through 32 And I think you could actually argue uh, verses 1 through 39 is like a section, uh, like a unit. And almost everything uh, that we've been looking at over the past several weeks has been leading up to this. Luke wants us to know that the gospel, the good news, his message, Christianity is about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do and how Jesus provides salvation. In other words, Jesus came to save, and he is the only one who can. That is uh, really what's at the core of this whole section. Luke's talked about salvation in chapters 1 and 2, explained it, and shown us how big it is, and uh, made clear that Jesus is the one bringing that salvation in chapters 3 and 4, and shown us some connections back to the Old Testament and how he's bringing that salvation. And now he's talking about who gets to experience that salvation in chapter five and explaining how that's possible because it's not who you would expect god is saving people you would not expect jesus came to save and he's saving sinners which uh, sounds simple enough uh, right it's funny sometimes talking about the bible because there are definitely parts that are complicated and that uh, explaining takes a lot of work, like the law. Uh, we've been talking about the law in our Bible studies on Thursday mornings. And that takes some work. It feels complex. But there are other parts that are, are super clear, like the gospel, that the most important message in the Bible is not really hard at all. I mean, you are a sinner. You need salvation. And Jesus is the only one who can save you. But you need to know that you need saving if he's going to, to. because Christ died for the ungodly, the ungodly. So, you know, those are the two really important parts. Only Jesus can save, one, and Jesus only saves sinners, two. You get that, and you get the main point but you don't get that and you kind of miss the whole point. Which like I said, seems like it should be simple enough to understand uh, really. And there are ways in which it is. You can understand that. Almost anyone can understand that. And yet at the same time, even if people do understand the concept, you often find it is incredibly difficult for them not to distort or add to. It's weird. They get it, and then they change it almost automatically. And even if they get it, it's hard for them to connect to how they live life. So they get it, and then they live by a different way of thinking. And then, if they do embrace it initially, and for a while they try to put it into practice, it's often very difficult for them to hold on to. It's uh, it's like it's slippery. You see that in the early church for sure. So right around the time Luke's writing, actually, there were churches that had been started and those churches were coming under attack. And we have letters that were written to those churches that we find in the Bible. And many of the letters that were written had to be written because even though those believers started by putting all their hope in Jesus, at first they got this, Jesus, 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 but then other people started to come and started to say, no, you need Jesus and salvation is jesus and and usually jesus and some old testament law or religious ritual basically look to jesus sure that's that's a start but you need something extra as well you need to look for something that you can bring to god something in which you can boast like you need to help jesus it's not jesus by himself It's Jesus and, which is what Paul's going after, for example, in Galatians. So probably one of the most famous letters like that is Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul is hot. He's upset. And he's like, you know what? If anyone preaches a gospel like that, Jesus and, they tempt you to boast in Jesus and something else. They deserve to be damned. Paul actually says, if I preached a gospel like that, I deserve to be damned. He's not having it (laughs) only jesus can save and jesus only saves sinners so this is a a big issue and it's not really complicated but it's really hard for us to hold on to it's really hard for us to hold on to you give us something to boast in you tell us there's something more besides jesus that we need to do you tell us we we need something in addition to Jesus. You, you tell us we, we need to do something to help Jesus, and it's very tempting for us to fall for that. It's very hard for us to believe Jesus is enough, to boast in Jesus alone, to think he's sufficient, and to think he would really want to save sinners, like real sinners who've got nothing and only can depend on him. We think we've got to do something. We've got to clean ourselves up. We've got to make ourselves worthy. And there are different reasons for that, uh, I'm I'm sure. But I think one reason uh, for some of us is because we're delusional, honestly. It's like we have no concept of how vast the distance is between us and God. It's like a chasm between cliffs, but we think we can jump it somehow. No, we can't jump it, especially because we're dead, spiritually dead, apart from God's work in our lives, and dead men can't jump. Marta, uh, when she was a kindergarten teacher, she had a student who brought in a a picture of Michael Jordan. Uh, This was a long time ago, but uh, I think it was Michael Jordan. And it was of him slam dunking or something. And this was a five-year-old who was trying to persuade the other kindergarten students, that's me. (laughs) Like he was really thinking they might be fooled. This little white boy is Michael Jordan. And that's maybe a little cute when it's a kindergarten student, but that's not cute when it comes to a person's relationship with God. And yet, many people, the reason Jesus and seems attractive to them is because they just have, totally have no self-awareness. They're they're completely fooled about who they are and what they're capable of doing, and so they think, of course, there's some way they can make themselves worthy of God. Others, though, are, are maybe almost the exact opposite. It's not really the exact opposite, but it looks like the exact opposite, and that's who I'm going to be coming after today. Others, they're not as delusional as they are desperate. And the reason they are so desperate for something they can do is because they do have a little sense of how great God is and how bad they are, and they just feel so unworthy. They want to find a way to make themselves worthy. In fact, I wonder how many of you have felt like that. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I talk about feeling unworthy? I'm talking about knowing there's this big gap between you and God deep down. About feeling ashamed. Maybe because of what you've done. Maybe because of what's happened to you. Maybe because of what others have said about you and the way they they treat you. I'm talking about looking back at your life without the spin. You ever try to do that? Try to look at your own life without the spin? Like, look at the things that happened without the instant rationalizations that you usually use and and just say them as they are. And seeing sin after sin and failure after failure and knowing that you can't go back and fix that. It's, It's done. You did it and it's bad that's feeling unworthy and I know we're not all coming to church obviously every time with this deep sense of unworthiness maybe you feel kind of a fine but I want you to try to tap into that for a moment to show you something about Jesus to help you see remember maybe how unique the gospel actually is because how do we normally deal with that that sense of unworthiness What do we do because you know what it can drive people it can absolutely drive people if you look at their lives shame guilt those are pretty powerful drives and usually what people do is they're they're kind of desperate to find something that will make them feel worthy it's like they have to fix this they can fix this and so sometimes it's rationalizations and denials they protest they have to tell others, no, I really am a good person, and you need to admit it. You need to agree with me. You need to justify me. Other times it's more positive, though. They'll, they'll say affirmations to themselves. I don't know if you've ever heard of anyone do this. I'm good enough. I, I'm strong enough. They have to keep telling themselves, I, I can do this. I am. I'm, I am better than people think. Or they'll get degrees. Sometimes people will think a piece of paper, you know, with uh, letters on it will make them worthy, or they'll buy cars, special brands of cars, or they'll attach themselves to someone that they think is worthy. I mean, there are lots of ways that people try to find a solution, but basically we try to find a solution in ourselves, something we can hold up to other people to get their justification of us, and sometimes with other people, those kinds of solutions do work for like a little while. You get rid of that sense of unworthiness, but the problem with all those solutions when it comes to God is that you are unworthy. That, that's the thing. You are unworthy. No matter how much you try to hide it and no matter how hard you try to fix it, you are unworthy. <laughs> That is just the fundamental problem. It's not you feeling unworthy that is the problem. It's that there are actual problems in you that make you unworthy and that you do not even have the capability of fixing, which is the the bad news. The good news, of course, though, is That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. And this is Luke chapter 5. So in the the very first story, we see the problem, you remember, because here's someone who recognizes he's unworthy, verses 1 to 11, Peter, the apostle Peter. And, And Peter's in a boat, and he sees that Jesus is the sovereign king, and he feels this gap between him and Jesus, and he realizes that he's even unworthy to be near him. And so he says, depart from me, for I am a sinner like Get out of my boat right now. And Jesus says, no. He actually says, do not be afraid, which is really good, really kind. And he doesn't leave. Instead, he says, basically, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. Not only is your unworthiness not going to make me depart, I'm bringing you with me, and and I'm going to use you to call other people like you to me which is so revolutionary that Jesus is choosing sinners. And yet we might say, can he really do that? Can he really do that? That's the question because it's nice for him to claim, of course. But again, this unworthiness is real. Peter is unworthy. And so it's, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, but imagine it's kind of like you have this really rich friend and you're invited to his super, 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 fancy wedding with all these super, super, super fancy people, but you don't have outfits like that, and you don't go to places like that, but somehow you decide to go, and uh, you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, and so you uh, dress up in your best outfit, but as you get there and you get out of the car, you fall, and you fall into this big pile of mud, and so now you're just gross. It's everywhere, and you want to go home. And your friend sees you, and he's like, come in. Don't don't worry about it. Just come in anyway. It's going to be fine. And you're like, thank you. Uh, That is kind, but we need to do something about this, right? Like, can you do something about this? And that's what we're asking about Jesus. I need saving, (laughs) but can Jesus really save by himself, can he deal with the consequences of sin and the shame that, of sin that keeps us from God? Because that's all over us and inside of us, you know? And so Luke gives us some proofs, the, f- the first proof being the next story about the leper in verses 12 through 16, because here's this absolute outcast, someone who had no way to fix the thing that was keeping him from God, and yet Jesus doesn't run away Instead, he touches him, and immediately he's cleansed. And then we get a second proof in the paralyzed man who was so on the outside that his friends have to make a hole in the roof just to get to Jesus. And yet that's ultimately because God is going to use him to make clear to everyone that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and that he's willing. Jesus heals him of his paralysis to prove He can forgive him of his sin to prove Jesus can do this. He can save. That's what his miracles were about. The miracles are proof. There's hope. There's hope for sinners to be cleansed and to be forgiven, and it's in Jesus. Again, it's in Jesus. Only Jesus can save, and Jesus only saves sinners. You look at these stories, and there's hope. It's not in what these individuals do. It's in what Jesus does for them. Jesus really can change people. Jesus really can cleanse people people from the shame of sin and Jesus really has the power and authority to forgive sin your sin my sin and yet we might still be wondering it's amazing but we we might still be wondering if we if we really feel unworthy it's good there's hope but is there hope for me really because this is this is just not how the world works at all and this wanting to be worthy really dies hard to prove yourself worthy you know how you're supposed to think but it's so hard to think that way and so now it's like luke tells a story luke chapter 5 verses 27 through 32 and there's going to be an illustration an objection and then an explanation. There are three parts to the story that we're going to look at. But I think you'll see it's almost like a summarizing story, really. That's why it's here, to make 100% crystal clear that if you feel unworthy, go to Jesus. He's enough. He really is enough. Jesus really can save, and he really wants to save sinners. And to prove that, verse 27, Luke starts off with an illustration. This, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, which maybe at first doesn't strike us the way it should. Uh, This is supposed to be a striking illustration. He saw a tax collector. You're all supposed to say, ooh. But how does that help, you know, a tax collector? It helps because when we talk about a tax collector, we're talking about someone everyone would have thought of as unworthy. Everyone. Everyone. Like, look up unworthy in a dictionary, and there's a picture of the tax collector. You can imagine maybe a group of people in America that everyone sees and thinks are scum. And I know uh, we say we don't have people like that, but we have people like that, that people look down on. It's funny. We're supposed to be tolerant, but many people who say they're really tolerant often aren't very tolerant, and they have people that they hate. And in Jesus' day, it would have been the tax collector. They were like the lowest of the low. I mean, for a Jewish person who hears about a tax collector, the, the instinctive gut response would be disgust, honestly, which you can appreciate. They had some reasons, if you look at the history, because Rome had taken over Israel, and they hated it. To them, it kind of felt like how it would feel if a group of soldiers took over your house. Can you imagine a group of soldiers taking over the house that you paid for and acting like it was theirs you wouldn't like that of course and that's what what it would have felt like for israel when rome took over their country and one of the reasons rome took over their country was to get money from them which had to make it worse because it was kind of like someone coming into your house taking over living there and then asking you to pay them rent which is what the romans were doing in israel they were big on taxation, which none of us likes being taxed, even from our own country. But it was a bigger deal to the Jewish people. It was like a slap in in the face. You can thank us for taking over your country and living in your home by paying us to live here. So every tax dollar must have felt like a, a small betrayal and almost unpatriotic. And so of course, Rome had to work to get this money. And they had a couple different strategies in particular. And one way they got the money they wanted was by giving people from that country the opportunity to become tax collectors. So not Romans, but Jewish people. And this is actually what they did around Jerusalem in the region of Judea. It was almost like a franchise you would buy into as a tax collector. And maybe you're like, why would you do that if you were Jewish? They did it because it was a way to get rich. That's pretty much it, because it was easy money. As long as Rome got what they wanted, Their percentage, which wasn't hard because you had all these Roman soldiers behind you, so people really couldn't say no to you. But as long as you got Rome what they wanted, you could add extra to what people owed and get a cut for yourself, which is why people hated tax collectors in general. But among those kinds of tax collectors, there were uh, different categories or different types of tax collectors. that gets more specific. Because in Judea, there were some tax collectors who just collected tax on your land and your income, and that's all they could focus on. They couldn't move beyond that. But there were also tax collectors who could collect tax on almost anything. And they even had different names for these kinds of tax collectors. So there was one called a gabai, another called a moques. And the moques, that's the one that could tax you on almost anything. So for example, say you were a fisherman. If you wanted to, that kind of tax collector could tax your boat. Then he could tax the fish that you caught on your boat And then if he still wanted a little more, he could tax you on the dock where you unloaded the fish, which maybe sounds like some politicians, you know, right? But some of these kinds of tax collectors, they were obviously sort of more important, and so they had a lot of money, and they sat back at the office, and they hired other men to do the work of collecting taxes for them, like Zacchaeus. You remember him. And Even though no one really liked them, they could kind of keep their reputation a little because they were able to stay away and stay hidden while other people did their dirty work, but there were other tax collectors who had to work for them themselves, and what they would do is set up a little tax booth somewhere and work from, from there, which for a long time is what I thought was happening with Levi, because you see how he says, uh, verse 27, he was sitting at a tax booth, and that mostly is what's going on with Levi, but there's a little more to it because Rome had a slightly different process for collecting taxes in Judea than they did Galilee. Those are like two different provinces. And so in Judea, they allowed men to buy into this opportunity straight. But in Galilee, they pretty much gave the whole tax-collecting process over to Herod, the man who killed uh, John the Baptist. And it was his responsibility to find people who would do the tax-collecting for him. And so Herod was working for Rome. And Levi was working for Herod, which I tell you because I think it only makes the situation worse because, look, a tax collector, any kind of tax collector was despised because he was a traitor and a thief all wrapped up in one. He was making money, stealing money from his own people by working for the enemy. It doesn't get much worse, especially because this is not just their enemy. It was God's. Remember, the Jews thought of the Romans as standing in God's way, really, and so they were looking for to the day when God would defeat the Romans and establish his kingdom. And so to them, it wasn't just the Jews versus the Romans. It was God versus the Romans, and the tax collectors had chosen to side with the Romans, meaning against God. And that was proved even in the way they collected the taxes, because the way Herod collected taxes was not by taxing his friends or the rich, obviously, but actually coming after the poor, primarily. And so there was a lot of underlying hostility. This was a tense moment in history, and in Galilee especially. Men would rise up and lead revolts against Rome because of the taxes. They hated it that much, but Rome had too much power, and so they would just be crushed in the end. But you can see why they tried and kept trying and why people hated tax collectors in general. And yet again, what makes the situation with Levi even a little worse is that he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a tax collector working for the man who beheaded John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He was working for Herod. And so not only is he betraying his country and God and the poor by working for the Romans, he is working for Herod specifically, the one who killed John. Which is why I think if you're going to say, you know, I feel so unworthy, I'm unworthy, it's so hard for me to believe Jesus Once someone like me, I would say, yeah, I get that. Welcome to the club. But let's talk about Levi. We've got to talk about Levi (laughs) because he's a perfect illustration. This is someone who is completely unworthy as he's stealing other people's money, oppressing God's people, and working for Herod. And yet, what does Jesus do as we look down at this story? Come on, what does Jesus do? The Son of the Most High, the Son of God, Christ Christ the Lord, the Holy One of God, Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't avoid Levi for sure, but more than that, he doesn't just not avoid Levi, he pursues him. He calls him. That's the shock, end of verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. you know, is basically what he said to Simon earlier, Peter. And so it's kind of like Luke's kicking open the door now. If we thought maybe what happened to Simon was just about what happened to Simon. No, look at Levi. Simon is just the beginning. Jesus came to save and he came to save sinners, real sinners. These are the people he's looking for. And you know, in case we look at that illustration and wonder, is that what it really means? Because maybe Levi is like some sort of special tax collector or something. Luke tells us what happens next, verse 29, and Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. In other words, what happens next is that Levi hosts a life group, (laughs) Levi throws a a party, which, of course, is something maybe that you would expect from Levi. If you just think about this from Levi's perspective, it's not surprising because here Levi is someone who's totally on the outside. He's like the moral equivalent of a leper, and yet all of a sudden the single most important person on the planet has sought him out and chosen him, and so he's someone who's truly been transformed by Jesus, and of course he wants others to know this is what happens when you realize what Jesus has done for you. And since Levi was on the outside, his friends would have been people on the outside as well. They would have been other tax collectors and people Luke just calls others. But Mark tells us fell under the class of sinners, which, you know, what a way to describe people, sinners. But basically in those days, if you're going to divide society up into good people and bad people, these were the bad people. And of course, it makes sense that Levi wanted all these people to come and meet the man who had impacted him and changed him. This is something you would totally expect Levi to do, but it's maybe not something that you would have thought Jesus would have wanted to do. That's that's the thing. That's why this illustration is so powerful. If you are feeling unworthy, how does Jesus relate to those who are unworthy? He comes after them. He comes after them. First Simon, now Levi, and now all these others as well. Luke tells us he eats a meal with them, which you've got to understand is Jesus making a statement. That's a statement. Because in those days, a meal wasn't just a meal. It meant something, who you ate with. At the very least, meals represented friendship, intimacy, and unity. And so when people saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they thought this means Jesus is friends with these kind of people. And that's one of the charges they brought against him. Later in Luke, we'll see Luke seven thirty four. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And those of you who feel unworthy, did you hear that? A friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about Jesus, which was scandalous. For anyone, I mean, even now it would be scandalous. A pastor who's a friend of sinners. A lot of people would be like, what's up with that pastor? But it would have been even more scandalous back then because Jesus feasting with tax collectors and sinners is actually more than just Jesus showing he had a friendship with them and that he was reaching out to them. It's a picture. It's what some people would call an enacted parable. And what I mean is that Jesus is king, and so he does things throughout the gospel that give us a picture of his coming kingdom, like a preview of what it's going to be like. And so, for example, that's part of what he's doing when he heals. Why does Jesus heal? He's showing us what life in the kingdom is going to be like. There isn't going to be any more pain or suffering or physical disease. And this idea of a party or a feast is a picture as well, because when God establishes his kingdom rule once and for all, he's going to throw a serious party, like a banquet. And so the Old Testament talks about this. This is a big picture in the Old Testament. Isaiah 25.6 is one example. On this mountain, Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." And then later, when Jesus describes heaven, he talks about it like a meal, Luke 13. And then John talks about something called the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is at the climax of Christ's great triumph. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about this absolutely perfect, God-glorifying, joy-filled banquet, feast, party. And what we get a picture of here in Luke 5 is the kind of people that are going to be at that banquet. Verse 26, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others, sinners, reclining at table with them, which made the Pharisees upset because they saw this illustration, and to a certain extent, they understood what it meant. It meant Jesus is coming for sinners. The kingdom is for sinners. That's clear. But they had an objection. And this objection is important, too, understanding this objection, because I think this is where we get tripped up, actually. If you think of this like a group counseling session for people who feel unworthy, this is where we start to go wrong as well. And so I'm glad that Luke doesn't just give the illustration, Jesus with sinners. He also records the objection, because this is what we often don't understand about Jesus. If you look at verse 30, he says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I'm I'm assuming they're asking that a little while after because they wouldn't have been at the party. But I'm sure they heard about it, and it bothered them. It really bothered them. And at first, if you know the Old Testament, you can kind of sort of understand why. Because there actually is a problem. I mean, these people are sinners. And God hates sin. And that's why in the Old Testament, God is pretty serious about his people not entering into close friendships with certain kinds of people. It's like there. That's, if you read Leviticus, this is one reason why he gave Israel all kinds of rules and regulations about what they could eat and what they could not eat. There's a lot about food in Leviticus and what you can and cannot eat. And one reason why is because it was supposed to set Israel apart. It's like just by what we eat, we're different than you. And because of all the different rules about what we eat, we can't even have a close friendship with you. That's what meals represent, a close friendship, because we can't even sit down for a meal with you. And so it would have been almost impossible for a Jewish person to ever eat with a non-Jewish person because you couldn't always know if you were eating the kind of food God said you could eat because it wasn't even just about the food. It was about the way it was prepared. Leviticus had rules about that as well. And by the time Jesus was around, they had taken those rules to another level the Pharisees, had added rules to rules. And you know why? Do you know why the Pharisees added rules to rules? This is really key. It's not just because they loved rules. It was because they wanted God's kingdom to come. And in their mind, part of the reason they were occupied by Rome was because God was judging them. And so they thought the way that they could be saved was by being even more serious about the rules back in Leviticus. The problem was, in in many of their minds, we've been too lax about this. That's why we're being judged. And so we've got to get back to the law. We've got to get back to the Bible. And so they even added rules to the rules in Leviticus, especially when it came to things like eating and drinking. And so really, people like the Pharisees were trying to be as serious about the purity of the table in their own home as they were what happened in the temple in Jerusalem so that the Messiah would come. Which, of course, is why they were looking at Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors and thinking, how can he really be the one? That's their objection, because the Messiah, you know, is coming to save. And who's he coming to save? He's coming to save good people, those who keep the law really well. That's how they understood salvation and the way the Messiah was going to work. And so they knew they needed grace. Please understand that. They knew they needed grace. That's the part I don't think we always get about the Pharisees. They knew God has to show us grace. That's why there were all these promises in the Old Testament. They're grace. And and, and we need God to keep those promises. That's what we're hoping. But how are we going to get God to keep them? That's the question. And this is the key. We have got to secure his favor by keeping his law. That is what the law is there for. And that essentially is legalism. Which kind of makes sense to us, I think, because that's almost ingrained into how we think from birth. And so that's how a lot of people still work and that's how the world works, do to get. That's how basically every other religion works. You need God to do something for you, but how do you get him to do it? You need to do something to earn God's favor. There needs to be something in you. You need to find a way to prove yourself worthy. And that's what makes this illustration here really shocking when you look at it. Because the Pharisee's objection is like a setup for Jesus. It's a setup to clarify who he is and how the gospel works. Because Jesus is obviously not pro-sin. He's not for sin. And yet here, what's happening, because think about this. Make sure you see it. Luke 1 to 4, Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom. He's going to keep all the promises in the Old Testament. And Luke 5, right now he's preaching about that kingdom throughout Israel. And he's calling people to be part of that kingdom. And there's one group of people on this side. Imagine them, the Pharisees, the scribes, and other religious people who seem to be working really hard, actually to keep the law and to clean themselves up. But then there's this other group of people on the other side who aren't. And yet when Jesus wants to give an illustration of what life in the kingdom is like, who he's calling to be part of that kingdom, the banquet, the great end times party, who does he go after? He goes after the people who aren't. He goes after the tax collectors and sinners. How does that work? And then, you know, like to really put an exclamation point on it, Luke really wants you to understand. What he wants you to understand is that this is not a fluke. This is not accidental. This is completely intentional because, I mean, here's the punchline. Jesus came to save. Only Jesus can save. And listen, Jesus only, only, only saves sinners. Which, again, I, I know I'm saying it over and over But that's because it's something that's not incidental. It's not negotiable. It's core to understanding the gospel and who Jesus is. You get that right, you're getting it. You don't get that right, you're missing the whole point. Which is so easy to say, I know, but it's so hard to hold on to because we really, really, really want to prove ourselves worthy. That's why we defend ourselves. That's why we get so upset when other people see us failing. We think about it the whole rest of the day. How, how come they saw me fail? That's why we're so driven to accomplish silly things, things that don't matter. That's why we put on a show. That's why it's so hard to have open friendships where people know who we really are. That's why, that's why, that's why that really drives us, and that's why no matter how long you've been a Christian, you need to hear this over and over. Your unworthiness is not a barrier to Jesus saving you, but your having to prove yourself to God to earn your salvation or at least to help Jesus somehow is an obstacle, the obstacle. That right there can mess you up spiritually, big time, and make you so weird. And so you really need to understand why, how, how, how can it work like this? And in verse 31, Jesus gives an explanation. You've got the illustration and the objection, and now the explanation. Verse 31, if God hates sin so much, why is Jesus hanging out with sinners and choosing sinners? Jesus says, because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It has to do with who Jesus is. He's a physician, a spiritual physician, a soul physician. In other words, Jesus is not just a teacher who comes to teach you how to be better. And Jesus is not just an image consultant that God sent to help you clean yourself up. He's a doctor that God sent to heal, which is another way, of course, of saying Jesus is a savior. If you picture sin like a sickness, sickness isn't an obstacle, it's actually the reason Jesus came, if you'll come to him. Man, I wish we could hear that. I really wish you could hear that. I think we need to hear that over and over and get it into our heads, because even now as Christians, as people who know this, so often we get tripped up by our unworthiness. You know what I mean? There are things that are there, and you see the sickness and you look at yourself and you feel so much shame. It might be from the past, it might be more recent, and you're like, who am I, who am I? I've got these perverted desires, I've got these wicked thoughts, I've done these terrible things. And you start looking for solutions, sometimes without even knowing it, and people offer them, that's the thing, people are constantly offering them. And so there's a whole lot of people out there in the world whose answer basically is, it's not a problem. It's not a problem that's the world we're living in deny 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 and it's tempting in this world to look at what's wrong with you and think maybe i can just ignore it or like give it another name but that kind of solution in the long run, run doesn't work it doesn't work for you because god's law is good and when you go against it you're doing yourself harm even if others say it's fine And it's not going to work in the long run. And you know what? Even if it did, it's not going to work when you stand before God because if you don't deal with that unworthiness, he can see through all your excuses and all your defenses and in the presence of his holiness. If it turns out you don't know Jesus, your sin will be exposed for what it is. And so the world's answer doesn't work. And yet, you know what? Neither does religions, if you think about it often. And by religion here, I just mean the Pharisees' style which is maybe where more of us are tempted to take the Pharisees' option, because what does religion say? Religion says, look at you, look at you, God can't just forgive you. Come on, you think that's how it works? You need to show yourself here. You need to earn forgiveness. You need help. You need to bring something to the table. And sometimes the way this works is maybe, yeah, okay, I'll give you that Jesus will show grace to you initially, He'll maybe forgive you at first, but after that, after you're forgiven at first, you know what you need to do? You need to keep earning His forgiveness and proving yourself. But the gospel says, you know what? You need to stop looking to yourself. Because in the gospel, God says, "I have a better solution. The gospel's a better solution. Please remember, the gospel is a better solution, because God says, I am sending in a physician, someone who can provide healing for those who are spiritually sick. So stop looking to yourself for, only, for what only Jesus can provide. Look to him. Go to him. How? In faith, like the leper, like the friends of the paralyzed man, like Levi, like, like the tax collectors, because Jesus can save. In fact, only Jesus can save. This is why he came. He's a, he's a doctor. But the thing is, you've got to know it. Because Jesus only saves sinners. He only saves sinners. You need to know you're sick. If you're going to be healed, that's true if you're not a Christian. And you know if you are, if you have come to Jesus, this is who he is. This is what he's done for you. So remember the kind of savior he is. He is a savior for sinners. And I think that should change us. It should really change us. For one thing, it should make us humble, because if you're a Christian, maybe right now you don't feel so unworthy. Jesus has changed you so much, and you might feel better about yourself now. But if you feel unworthy, if you don't feel worthy, if you're a Christian, either way, it wasn't you. Jesus saved you. Christ died for the ungodly. That is how salvation works. He's the one who restored your relationship to God. He's the one who provided the hope of eternal life. He's done it, and he's done it, Jesus, all by himself, which is the hope we have to offer to others as well. This is the message we want to take out there. If we develop friendships with people, we've got a message that is really unique and that people desperately need. I was reading this week about an actor named Michael Richards. And do you remember him? He played uh, Kramer on Seinfeld. So Michael Jordan and Seinfeld. I guess I'm aging myself here. But if you don't remember him, it's because he was, uh, maybe you're too young, or he was canceled back in 2006, actually. And, and he definitely gave people a reason to be upset because he flew into this, like, absolutely racist rant after being heckled by someone as he was performing stand-up comedy. If you ever saw the video... It's awful. And it went viral. And after it went viral, uh, Richard's career was really in trouble. And so he went on the late show with David Letterman to do atonement. He said, "Uh, I I said some pretty nasty things to some African-Americans. You know, I'm really busted up over this and I'm very, very sorry. But uh, Paul Miller writes, the confession didn't go well. He started to do his comic thing and it was confusing for the audience, and so Jerry Seinfeld was the one who had introduced him on the show, and he had to tell the audience actually to stop laughing. He's not, he's not telling the joke. Afterwards, his uh, shame was so profound that he stopped doing stand-up comedy. Years later, uh, Seinfeld tried to redeem his friend by inviting him onto his new Internet show called uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Uh, Seinfeld picked uh, Richards up in an old VW van, and they went for coffee. And you could still feel Richards' shame as he told Seinfeld, I busted up after that event seven years ago. It broke me down. And Jerry Seinfeld encouraged Richards to let it go, saying, that's up to you to say, I've been carrying this bag long, long enough. I've, I'm going to put it down. But Richards couldn't. He just said, yeah, yeah. Richards couldn't put it down because he deep down knew he couldn't justify himself. He instinctively realized that even Seinfeld, with all his goodwill and fame, couldn't declare him righteous. Justification by Seinfeld didn't work. Justification by confession didn't work. Neither would forgiving yourself. Why not? We've sinned against a holy God. Only God can justify. Only God can forgive. Only the blood of Christ can satisfy the insatiable thirst of a guilty conscience when the the video of Richard's rant went viral, nothing could remove his shame, not even YouTube taking the video down or Seinfeld repeatedly going to bat for him. You see, the real problem isn't that Richard's looked bad, it's that Richard's was bad. And the only one who can deal with that is Jesus. That's why he came. He wants to do for you what no one else can. If you see your sin, if you know your need, if you feel unworthy, you are the kind of person Jesus came for. So what do you do? You need to come to him in repentance and faith, trusting that he will, trusting that he will, which is actually for some people the really hard part. So there are some people who have a hard time believing they're unworthy, but there are others who have a hard time believing that Jesus wants to save them, And so you know what they do? They beat themselves up, but won't come. And look, listen, beating yourself up for failure is not the same thing as repentance and faith. In fact, let me just like push on this a little bit. Just feeling badly about yourself is sometimes a way of trying to be your own savior where you're trying to pay for your sins emotionally. God often uses failure to bring you to Jesus, but just recognizing your failure is not the same thing as repenting and believing. You've got to give up on self altogether, promoting self, saving self, and look outside of yourself to Jesus. You see you're helpless, good, so cry out, for Jesus to show you kindness and trust yourself completely to him. And you prove like Levi that you have entrusted yourself to a good and loving Savior by following him. And if you do, you can be confident. He will accept you and he will change you because that is literally why he came. Jesus came to save sinners. And look, listen, hear me now. You might even say it with me. Only sinners. Only sinners. And this is where the warning comes, verse 32, because Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, which is a very scary verse. It's a really scary verse for people who think they're good. I have not come. There's a group of people I haven't come for. I haven't come to call the righteous, which I always used to tell my daughters, that is so scary for people who think they're good, which is who Jesus is talking about. Because there's not anyone who's truly righteous on their own, not even the Pharisees. But there are a lot of people who look it to the world and there are a lot of people who think it about themselves, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, which is why they're looking at Jesus, eating with the tax collectors and sinners, and are like, why are you eating with them and not us if you're the Messiah? You should be with people like us. Why? Because we deserve it. We, we've worked for this. And Jesus is saying, no, that right there is the problem. Because mark it down, I did not come to call people who think they're righteous. I came to call people who know they're not to repentance, which seems simple, right? You know, the gospel is not really a complicated message. We're taking a long time studying Luke, but the core is pretty simple. You need saving. Jesus saves. He's the only one who can save, but Jesus only saves sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. So look to Jesus instead of yourself, to his death in your place, his righteousness instead of your own. And the Father will forgive you and count you righteous because he will place you in Jesus by faith. That's not too hard to understand. And yet, no matter how long you've known it, that's a message that is very hard to hold on to. It's slippery because we so desperately want to point to our own righteousness. We want to prove ourselves worthy. And so instead of going to Jesus, we try to defend ourselves, receive our justification from others, look to them to declare us righteous instead of God, which doesn't work. So stop. If if you see your unworthiness, instead of defending or hiding, or trying to prove, or beating yourself up forever and ever and ever, thank God. Thank God. Thank God that you feel unworthy. Take it to Jesus and ask him to help you see it the way he does, as actually worse than you think it is, because it's not just what other people think about you that makes you feel unworthy It's because you are unworthy. You have sinned against a holy God and trust that God is so good that he would provide a way for you to be forgiven because he sent a savior. But he sent that savior for people who who need one and only for people who know it. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to shout this message from the rooftop. Uh, This is unique. It is awesome. It is life transforming. And yet it's so hard for it to sink deep into our souls, either because we're delusional or we're desperate. But either way, primarily because we just keep looking at ourselves. And so please get our eyes off of ourselves. And onto you, Jesus, the only one who can save us, and give us the assurance, the assurance that you save sinners, which means you've saved us. And we uh, pray this in your name. Amen.